Hello, and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. We are taping here at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles on Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood. As you know, Pod Sequentialism is brought to you by Pop Sequentialism, the traveling exhibition of sequential comic book art. Also, the catalog was produced. I still have some of those, so if anybody wants to contact me to get a hold of one, you can just send an email to info at popsequentialism.com. And we are also a production of La Luz de Jesus Gallery, uh, located inside the Soap Plant Wacko Superstore on Hollywood Boulevard in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, and by Gallery 30 South. So that's at Gallery 30 South. And uh, you can follow us on social media, which is a new endeavor that my wife and I have out in Pasadena. And uh, I thought that it's great to follow up last week's show, wherein Mason and I talked about the Bechdel test being applied to the new Spider-Man and us having very different ideas about whether or not it passed the Bechdel test with this show on cultural appropriation. And I thought a perfect person to have on would be my friend Sean Stepanoff. Hi. Sean Stepanoff is currently exhibiting at La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Uh, Sean is a painter, and part of the iconography that he utilizes in his painting is the style used in Gahanian um, barbershop signs. And so we're going to have a conversation about that. And we're going to talk a little bit about how people often misuse the term cultural appropriation when they really mean cultural misappropriation and how they're often still wrong. So in researching this show, I want to give a shout out to um, T1J, which is uh, the one janitor. So at the, the number one janitor. Uh, across all social media. He has an amazing podcast that he does. He has a YouTube station. And he's um African-American male who tackles a lot of uh, current uh, social, political issues and gives uh, generally a really, really fresh perspective on things. And, and his, his show is, is constantly an inspiration. I really love what he has to say about things. Would love to have him on the show in the, in the not-too-distant future. But one thing that uh, made it onto my radar lately in his program was that the one question that he gets more often than not across any question you could ask is because he has dreadlocks, people ask him, usually white people, hey, is it okay for white people to have dreadlocks? And so his answer was this. His answer was that, as he understands it, dreadlocks are a sign of Rastafari. Rastafari is a religion. It does Mm -hmm. not address anybody's color. And therefore, who cares who has dreadlocks? Um, I'm sure that we will get tons of comments that think that is wrong. But, you know, whenever possible, you want to stick to the tenets of an actual point and not um, do any kind of form of what is it that we like to uh, use the term tone policing, which is attacking a person and not the argument, which ignores the substance of the arguments and sort of belittles somebody's point by casting out some kind of insult, generally an insult that is seen mainly as an insult to progressives. So that um, while I consider myself to be pretty left wing, that um, sometimes I also come under the attack and wrath of people who who feel that they're in a contest to see how much further left they can get. So... Let's talk a little bit about your upbringing. Oh, about my upbringing. Um, I grew up in San Francisco. Um, I grew up there for like 10 years in a very urban environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, rent got a little bit more expensive. We moved out to the suburbs. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm uh, my mom's Filipino. My dad's German-Irish. Mm-hmm. And 
I looked a little bit more Asian when I was younger, and when I moved out to the suburbs, I experienced a little bit more of a. <clears throat> uh, I seemed to ask. Uh, I was being asked more if I knew karate out there, and uh, yeah. anyway, I, I lived out in the suburbs. It was a very. It's a culture shock for me, and uh, yeah, I mainly grew up uh, up in Northern California, Petaluma, and uh, spent high school. Went to high school out there, mm-hmm. and uh, went to City College out in Santa Rosa, mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, but I've been living in L.A. for like 20 years. But you've also spent time, you've, you've been in a lot of cities where art is possibly one of the defining characteristics of the city. So you came from Northern California where a lot of people associate certain elements of the art movement, and especially as it relates to what you do, because you're an illustrator, mm-hmm. and you've done tons of your own comics, you've, you've self-published zines, mm-hmm. um, you know, you've, you've even published David Cho. Yeah. We could yeah. probably spend a whole show talking about David Cho and his recent activity, but we're not going to. And, um, you know, you come out of that San Francisco. New York, too. I, I, in New York. First, New York was the first time out of the, the nest. Uh, I had a friend going to NYU and mm-hmm. said, come on out here. Uh, saved like $3,000 and ended up moving out there. And it was like very uh, big wake up call. Yeah. But it was like in 95, 96. And I, and I thought New York was the. The scene for art and mm-hmm. graffiti. I was really into graffiti, and uh, and it already started to homogenize at yeah, that point. Yeah, I when I went there, I was there's a lot of club kid stuff. All that club kid murders was going on when yeah. I was out there. I, I met a lot of those people, and a lot of those people. When I looked at their art, it wasn't as uh, it wasn't as good as I thought it would be out there in New York. Yeah. I, but um, it was more about being an artist than uh, <laughs> than about that, you know dressing skill. yourself right, up. You know, right. dressing, doing more of a more of a performance art kind of stuff. Yeah. So now, and you go from San Francisco where there's this rich illustration culture which grows out of the, you know, Haight-Ashbury scene. So you had people that were illustrating the rock posters and then you had, you know, like Rip Off Press and Last Gas putting out the underground comics. And so your style is very in tune with that. Like you have a kind of post-Mad Magazine illustrative style that if we were to compare to some of the bigger names in comics these days, you know, it's would be fully in step with Daniel Klaus, with Peter Bagg, with um, yeah. some of the, you know, kind of like rock star names in, in the illustrative stars. arts. Yeah. And to go from that where illustration is so elevated, appreciated, and sort of seen as a really valid form of not just art but of communication, to go to New York where if anything looked like anything, you were doing it wrong. Like in that era. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had to. You had to do graffiti too. You had to tag wherever you were. Mm-hmm. You know, and you had to have a name. And, and uh, yeah, it was definitely like a. <laughs> and we don't know any of those people. Like if if you go back and you look at who the big names in graffiti are, nobody uh, from that era of New York is 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 collected and doing well. Yeah, yeah. a lot of them. Uh, I mean, I know club kid culture is looked back at now and very revered right now. Yes. Like I know, like a lot of people that I knew back then, like Walt Paper and uh, all these people. I was part of this art group for the Tunnel Club, mm-hmm. and uh, Michael Alec was the leader of the club. Yep. And my friend's like, "Hey, I mean, you want to be part of this art club?" And I'm like, "Yeah, sure." Michael sounds- Alec for the for the uneducated is uh, was very famously profiled in the Party Monster documentary and fictional film he was accused of murdering another club kid Angel. which yeah, yeah. which for met- a while was was not necessarily proven and then he copped to it yeah i mean all this stuff was happening while i was there but i was totally ignorant of it i mean there's a lot of people and people knew about it happening but um yeah all these all these all these people are, are you know i see a big resurgence in club kid it's back yeah. well the 90s are back and the so 90s are back that, so that aspect of it would be back and of course chloe 70 was a was a huge scene in mm-hmm. that era uh, this is just prior to kids getting released 
Um, she was dating Harmony Corinne at the time. Um, he wrote her into the script that Larry Clark shot, and that sort of brought her to the forefront. Now, she was a famous club kid and was able to kind of, one of the only people, I think, who was really able to turn performance art into a dramatic career to a much lesser degree, you can say Lady Gaga, but we don't view her necessarily as a club kid performance artist. We view her as a pop star. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So now, after going from San Francisco to New York, uh, you come back, you come to Los Angeles. Yeah, New York kind of chewed me up and spat me out. Actually, it was, it was I spent a year there, and, and you know, I think my, even my parents my, made bets I'd come back after two weeks. But it was a yeah, I, I did come back to to San Francisco after this. Mm-hmm. And then, how long was did you enroll in art school? No, I was I was uh, I I moved. I wanted to. I was about. To, I, I moved back to San Francisco, and I was just. Uh, Working in restaurants and, and trying to make support myself, but also trying to get involved with the local art shows and the underground scene over there, which was a lot going on. Everybody yeah. was doing a lot of DIY um, around uh, the Mission District. There was a lot of cool stuff going on. Mm-hmm. It's like 97, 98. Yeah, 97, yeah. 98. I was still living in the Mission. Uh, people still had uh, affordable rent. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it was it was a really fun time. WonderCon was was starting to really get underway, and so like the instead of there just being Comic Con, there was another really valid and viable convention that was being organized for for a kind of you know for your underground comics. You know, zines were still at that point primarily illustrated. Now zines are everything. So there's there's photography zines, there's poetry zines, but you know the illustrated zine really came back because there were so many gifted illustrators in the Bay Area. Yeah. I mean, there was like a Filth Magazine was a weekly thing they put yeah. out, Matso, and, and also uh, there's a place called The Lab. Mm-hmm. And I remember they, I went to performance artist Hollywood Squares. Mm-hmm. You know, they had really cool stuff. They had them stacked up. And uh, yeah, the performance art scene was really happening over there because it was really, it, when you went down into the mission, there was some really cheap rent and people could live there and, and live those lives. Well, that makes me think. So, you know, if you compare a lot of what motivates a scene and what nurtures a scene is affordable rent. So yeah. we all know this, right? That yeah. artists artists replace the cockroaches. Yuppies replace the artists. Mm-hmm. Um, financiers and foreign investors replace the yuppies. And then it all implodes again and it goes back to the cockroaches. Yeah. We're, we're seeing that happen in, in Los Angeles to a much slower pace than what has happened up north because Silicon Valley has been expanding so much in the last 10 or 12 years that rent has gotten ridiculous that the you know the price of groceries is now reflecting the pro- the cost of rent. Yeah. Now I was just up there last weekend and I was in Tiburon and when we went into Mill Valley to buy groceries, lunch meat was four times what lunch meat <laughs> is in Los Angeles at Whole Foods. I mean like and we weren't at Whole Foods. So like the whole the the price of like uh, at Ralph's was four times higher than at Whole Foods because everybody's made a money up there and you know that the there's so much I mean we, as we were driving in from the airport before you even hit the Golden Gate Bridge and you have all those those kind of row houses that are just like wall to wall there's no space between them they're just kind of stacked and uh, anybody who's yeah. seen um, you know the TV show Full House you kind of get an idea of like how close everybody is but that you could see that there were obviously like think tanks, like technological think tanks. You could see through their windows, and you can see people working like in in the front bedroom of these apartment, these uh, like tenement houses. It's crazy. So that since that environment is now impossible, 
And since a lot of artists have been moving to both Oakland and Berkeley, that certainly the art scene in, in, in Oakland is seen as kind of the capital of the Northern California art scene right now. Yeah. For like, you know, you're, you're down and dirty and, and, and that. But now because of the ghost ship fire and because of regulations finally being enforced on code on building throughout California, not mm-hmm. just in Northern California, that that's going to cause some dispersal. So do you think that maybe Los Angeles is going to kind of pick up a little bit of that slack, especially since there's more nightclubs here now? Or do you think that the environment just is so different? It's People get further out, go to Eagle Rock, go yep. to Highland Park. Uh, people are still finding places, but it is scary. It's it's uh, it's like an eclipse of the renting situation. I mean, it's, it's, it's happening. It's mm-hmm. getting kind of scary. Everybody's getting really nervous. And... Uh, of course, uh, LA is is blowing up, and there's a lot of really cool people moving here. But yeah. it's, uh, I'm just, yeah. Everybody's... In New York, there were a lot of trust fund kids. True, and they would carry the kids that weren't. But in San Francisco, that was not the case. In San Francisco, it was like middle class kids, and in Los Angeles, artists are notoriously broke. I mean, like yeah. you know, because you can still find places to live, you know, and it's it not as much anymore, but it's it's still like there's that gathering of survival instinct but there doesn't still like do you miss the idea of how many collectives and you know support organizations there were up in san francisco because there's not a lot of that here it it, yeah it was only for a short time i mean that stuff disappears pretty quickly you know one person uh, gets successful and the the group disappears or or you got to move because you can't afford the rent people Mm -hmm. move out but yeah no it's 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 nice to have a scene going on i see it happening in la and uh you know, it's still it's still going on, mm-hmm. um, but it's day by day. <laughs> yeah. So now let's talk about, um, you know, the, the subject that we were talking about at the top of the hour, which mm-hmm. is I wanted to make a real conscious effort to delineate this notion of cultural appropriation and with an, a cultural appreciation. And, you know, you, you are a person of color. You are mixed race child of yeah. A, I mean, I look pretty Islander. white. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, my mom was, was born in the Philippines. Uh, you know, what do they say? Spanish, Chinese. It's basically yeah. My dad very white from uh, was uh, from Illinois, mm-hmm. uh, German Irish. Yeah, and so you you may be able to come at it in a different way than say I can. You know, like I am like the poster child for white America. I'm a little short to be the poster child for white America, but I'm I'm pretty goddamn white looking. And you know, I'm, I'm a blonde blue eyed guy with the name Kennedy mm-hmm. from Massachusetts, even even more so. So like whenever I make an argument that there is that outrage culture is has run amok, even though I feel like I am very firmly and I feel that my actions and the tone of my show is very much rooted, you know, in in slightly left wing politics, shall we say? Mm-hmm. When the Trump campaign took ads out on the podcast and we found out about it, we we called up and we canceled. It. We're like we're not taking their money. Um, yeah. Odd that they thought that that would they be a demographic for them. Wow! But um, you know that I feel like it, it. I pretty much wear my politics on my sleeve, but that I still feel that part of the problem and why there's been so much resistance and why there's been so much separation uh, politically in this country. And it, you can see it in comics. You can see it in the art world, too. I mean, it, it's maybe less apparent in, in the fine art world, but it's still there. And it's this idea that 
um, you know, on the right that that we're a bunch of cultural elites and that, um, you know, that we represent a danger to what they consider to be freedoms, whether it's a freedom of speech or, um, you know, Second Amendment type of stuff. And then on the extreme left, it's that... um, you know that there has to be safe space, and that safe space requires a, um, a, I guess, a withholding of certain first and First Amendment rights. That you know it's not okay to say certain stuff. And so I think somewhere in the middle, there's got to be some, you know, some gray area. But I think that more importantly, that there's, if a pendulum swings too far in any direction, it's going to swing back in the opposite direction just as far. And I think we're seeing that. And I think that some savvy politicians have really locked into that fear of that pendulum swing. Yeah. And so I went and I looked up the definition of cultural appropriation. So this is what it said. And it said, cultural appropriation is the adoption or use of the elements of one culture by members of another culture. So that's it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the full definition. And so, of course... Cultural appropriation is often framed as cultural misappropriation. I think when people are saying cultural appropriation as a pejorative, that what they mean is cultural misappropriation, that they think that one culture has taken an element of another culture and they've portrayed it in a harmful way. And I think that proving harm, and I don't mean proving harm in in like a legalese sense, but I mean indicating that there that there is harm or that there is intent of harm um, is in and of itself rather difficult. And so in order for there to be a claim that there's this kind of violation of the collective intellectual property rights of an originating culture is in many ways in opposition to the fundamental progress of civilization. In other words, that... You know, while they may think that the appropriation or misappropriation, as it really should be, refers to the adoption of these elements in a colonial manner, that elements are frequently copied from minority cultures by members of a dominant culture as a means of assimilation, as a means of embrace, like to say, hey, you guys are new. We really love this thing. We want to make you more comfortable. We're all going to adopt this aspect of of the culture. And I think as you have many more cultures living in proximity, since the population bases of cities are getting bigger and bigger, driving the rents up, you know, yeah. as, as we see, that you may have people that are a newer group appearing after the last group before the last group has gotten a, a widespread acceptance. And so there's a slow mint, you know, there's like a bottleneck in um, the acceptance of what is very quite often, especially in the United States, you know, white middle class culture. But that, you know, that you have to distinguish that borrowing from a culture is inevitable and that contributes to to the diversity of free expression. And I think that most of what we see in fashion is a collection of what is seen in various neighborhoods. And I think that's just reflecting the modern city. I don't think it's necessarily trying to draw a profit line back into say the originating culture if if it's you know part of the of african diaspora well diaspora is spread diaspora is the idea that um a culture has spread into different areas sometimes because of needing to um escape persecution but oftentimes just as a natural part of dissolving into the culture you know um the idea i think a lot of people 
a lot of people have an idea about what the melting pot means, and we could probably do a whole show on that. We're not going to. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, because you are, as you say, you know, it's like you, you, you look predominantly white, but you're operating in an art style that is seen by a lot of people as being predominantly African, and not African-American, but African. Mm-hmm. But that is to deny the idea that that's a take on an American barbershop sign. So that in a way it's coming full circle. That like the barbershop motif that the Gahanian artists have been making is very yeah. much a painted version of the photos that you would see in a barbershop in say New York City or Boston or Philadelphia. Yeah, they, they didn't have they don't have access uh, they didn't have access to uh, printing. Uh, huge posters for right. the most modern haircuts, you know, mm-hmm. if uh, someone, a celebrity or someone wants a certain haircut, uh, you know, they couldn't do it. They could do it in a week now. They can hire an artist. Yeah. And uh, these guys made a living off this stuff for a while. And- Sign painters, which is actually very ironically going back to your heritage. Going back to the city of San Francisco, it was sign painters that created the rock poster movement. Oh, yeah. No, I, I mean, I love... I love the entire idea of it, you know, it's actual like a, a job and, and it's a tool that's used, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great tool and everybody's getting into hand lettering right now and it's mm-hmm. very exciting stuff because everybody wants handmade stuff and, and this is the original style. In of, an expanding digital world, an yeah. expanding digital uh, acclamation to have these analog elements is becoming, you know, not only like... Not only just cool, because, I mean, what is cool? What defines cool? It's it's an embrace. But that it speaks to this fondness for a simpler time as things get yeah, ever things more complicated. Yeah, things are going backwards. I mean, everybody's getting into, like, bad VCR copies. And, <laughs> you know and me and my cassette digital, tapes. Yeah, cassette tapes. I mean, it's very, it's much more interesting uh, to look at. Everybody's uh, roughing up their, their uh, graphics. They're mm-hmm. always roughed up and scuzzed out and T-shirts are already made worn. Yep. And uh, I guess that's that's definitely like an appeal nowadays and we want something really worn down. And I'm, of course, attracted to it and, you know, I painted these things uh, new and I remember showing it uh, to Billy, mm-hmm. Billy Shire, and, and he said, you need to run over this this painting with the with the car you need to do this and it was the best advice yeah. because i really you know from that new that's the main appeal of these things the uh you know the kind of a story of where these things have been was why is this thing so beaten up because when you look at the original ones mm-hmm. i mean it's they're so beaten up and so not cared for i mean they're just used as signs yeah um i mean it wasn't until like tourists came in and wanted to buy those that they started creating them just for tourists. Mm. There was a very controversial exhibition not too long ago. Someone had gone and paid um, homeless people for their will work for food signs. Oh my gosh. And they did an exhibition of, of these actual signs. And of course, where it becomes problematic, I believe, is in the commerce of it. That if you pay a guy five bucks for his handmade sign and you present his work as a symbol of this distanced misery and you oh, yeah, charge $500 that, yeah. or $5,000 for it, unless you're kicking back, you know, a lot more money to the guy that made the sign as a way of saying, we're addressing this problem and we're using the problem itself to correct it, then there's something wrong there. That is definitely, that's exploitation. Uh, uh, that's total uh, derelict. 
yeah. Zoolander stuff there. That's yeah. some uh, Mugatu stuff. Uh, I always I always think of that movie <laughs> <laughs> when they uh, the total exploitation of that kind of stuff. I think it's hilarious. Yeah. But th- I mean, in that movie. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that is that is a fine line when someone's making a bunch of money off that stuff. It is pretty. You know, it is. It's it's almost comedy. Well, with, with Ben Stiller too. I mean, he's somebody that he's he's so good at sort of mimicking a thing that he's making fun of that sometimes it's not always clear that he's making fun of it like it's it's so it should be obvious I would think and again if you understand his politics you understand where he's coming from that should, it should be really obvious when he's you know casting it in this sort of like hilarious light it's hilarious because it's so ridiculous that you can't even imagine it being possible until it becomes possible and you're like whoa Someone totally got the wrong message from that. And I mean, that's why that stuff is funny. But the, you know, when you're talking about aging the work, you're tapping into something really incredible in the nature and aspect of why we like things. And certainly there are hundreds, if not thousands of people who have painted African barber shop signs. Mm-hmm. You know, in Africa, there's, there are people who were painting them there that are now painting them here. And, and certainly we know one of the, the main yeah. salespeople for that I don't that think work. those signs, uh, we, we, you know, I know we buy, uh, they buy at Wacko uh, the signs, um, but we don't know. They, I don't think they've ever been in Africa. No, no. It's, it's just the same, <laughs> the same guys that were painting them in Africa are now in the United States. Yeah, you and, see him at the Rose Bowl. Yeah, and Bully, the guy who is their rep, um, is he's he's an African man himself. He paints them as well, and he's got some other people that paint for him. But that they're still using old, you know, discarded wood, and you, you use driftwood and stuff yeah, that you found to paint the stuff it's on. Key, yeah. But by tapping into the wear, it brings back that usage. Like it, it gives the idea that it was not produced necessarily for an art show, but that it was that it has usage. And when we talk about your signs, they're very different. You're not just painting barbershop signs. You're using that style to convey an awareness of pop culture while simultaneously making fun of certain elements of pop culture and elevating things that you really love. Yeah, I know it's from my point of view completely, you know, like I, I'm it's my own cultural uh, you know speaker for things you know it's like i'm advertising what i like i mean it's very niche i mean it's it's you know i, I love the movie fantastic planet and, mm-hmm. and obviously they have no hair and i'm, I'm painting these guys <laughs> in a barbershop sign, yeah. sign and people i mean that's i mean i don't see any uh rules in that i mean people see mm-hmm. it i like drawing people in and people thinking that these are the real deal but it's something uh much more of uh, you know a different viewpoint you know, just my viewpoint of, of some of my favorite things. You yeah, know? when you talk about going deep, I remember when you dropped off the signs, and there's some amazing pieces. There's a great tribute piece to the movie They Live, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny that I think when you first sent me the pictures before you'd painted the bubble gum into it. And, and, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I showed it to my neck. It's missing the bubble gum. I'm like, wait a minute, I think there's bubble gum on it. And I, oh, I got the an early bubble picture. bubble gum is the big line. You look on Google, you look up bubble gum, they say that quote. Yeah, I'm just here. I just came here to chew bubble gum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubble gum. And, you know, you, you picked Holy Mountain, you know, a film that we love, a Jodorowsky film, and yeah, his new film huge. is is out right now in, in in New York and is soon coming to Los Angeles. And um, the but when you talk about going deep, mm-hmm. I mean, you did an American movie one. Oh yeah, and but that's pretty niche. That's pretty deep. You, I I hear people uh, in the gallery; they're freaking on it. A lot of people have mm-hmm. uh, you know because that movie is such a you know it's affected a lot of people, yeah. and uh, it's not. You know, I like to bring attention to it, too, because if people haven't seen that, they need to see it. I think that's, that's one of the most hilarious... Well, it's also kind of the first movie that's a good movie made about a bad movie. 
Yeah. You know, like as a documentary, I mean, certainly there have been profiles of directors like Ed Wood, but this is one film and someone had the foresight to film the making yeah, they of were in their this film. film class. This film Coven. Coven. Yeah. You know, as the guy says Coven. Of course. And um and it just becomes the unmaking of. And that became an entire genre of film from that point forward. Now we've seen numerous documentaries about failed projects, not the least of which of course is Jodorowsky's Dune, you know, that uh, yeah. a film about a movie that, that, that doesn't get made. Man of La Mancha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, lo- I love those kind of movies, too. Yeah. It's amazing. Now, I mean, we're down to, like, you know, the making of the third, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street movie and oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. And uh, successful films. The making you know. of Pet Cemetery. Yeah, no, I, Pet I, Cemetery. That's what I was <laughs> that's trying the to one think I was of. Talking. Yeah. Amazon Prime. No, uh, yeah, no, I, I wanted to do, I mean, when I started doing, I wanted to do some movies and and I didn't want to you know people are like hey why don't you do uh you know Star Wars I'm like no I don't want to do Pulp Fiction these things have been trotted over a lot done to these, death I mean they've been shows death. dedicated to them at Gallery 1980 yeah, yeah. I, I, I wanted to go for my personal like when I used to go to the video store when I was a kid it was always exciting I mm-hmm. went straight to the cult section yeah. and I rented everything in that section even the bad ones and you didn't know what was up you couldn't look this stuff up if this was going to be good mm-hmm. or not but that was always my go-to spot and of course you know like Holy Mountain is, is huge in that zone it was just all these crazy yeah. mystical cult there was only one section for me it was the cult was the, the most underground spot that you can get like in the town like in yeah. Petaluma you go to Petaluma and there's not a lot going on and, and then you go into this video store and you go deep in there and next you know you're renting like uh, Dr. Caligari from the 80s and, yeah. and, and uh, the rinse stream feature yeah yeah and uh, yeah that was always stuff that we got and every uh, you know city I lived in I had a video store that I loved yeah New York Kim's video yeah. in San Francisco Leather Tongue video mm. in the mission and uh you know, and Mondo, Mondo Video, yep. of course, Jerry's, of Jerry's, course, uh, and all these, Market. Yeah. these are all gone. And uh, yeah, Rocket's you know, gone too. I'm even missing 2020. No, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, this is a, you know, like uh, yeah, there are great social places where you can meet up, and uh, it is kind of an ode to that that time too. You know, these movies mm-hmm. that I discovered when you you were discovering gems, and I remember renting American movie with friends mm-hmm. and just it turning into just a moment I remember just watching this with friends and uh, just being blown away by it and using the, the lines from movie forever, you know, mm-hmm. just like it, for the rest of my life, you know. Now, I've also had, you know, the, the great fortune to have placed your work in some pretty prominent collections. Mm-hmm. And so when you first did the Diane Ward Zeph cuts yes. piece, yes. Uh, that got shared by Yolandi and was used in the actual live set for... That's crazy. Yeah, know, it's nuts. I mean, Diane hey. Ward's live show, they, they they collect images of fan art and they run that on a loop right at the beginning of their show before they open I, the show. I'm so confident. And I remember right after that going to the show at the Shrine and seeing a piece that I own, <laughs> that yes, you painted yes, yes. in this show. And then there was, you know, there's been, we've gotten the NWA, you know, the Compton Haircuts yes. um, piece into the collection of... You know, former head of Interscope Records, John mm-hmm. McClain, um, who's been a big supporter of that stuff. And he, he likes that kind of, you know, self-taught approach to work. And he lo- it, it worked on all cylinders for him. You know, this guy who doesn't necessarily focus on African-American art, but is very much involved in buying the totems of hip-hop culture. Yeah. And so, you know, you're on a wall next to a Basquiat. That's great. It's yeah. fantastic. No, that's a, it's funny how art happens like that. It has its you don't know what happens to it and, and, and then it goes away and then yeah, 
it gets to hang out. And, <laughs> the, and the, the Love Witch one that you did. The Love Witch one. We got one, that image Anna, to Anna Biller, and Anna Biller shared it. And uh, it's I'm, it's a it's a small world. I'm so happy that the 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 directors and the people that create these movies that inspire me get to see my art and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm just, uh, yeah, it's great. I mean, I saw that over at CineFamily. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of blew my mind, and that's the most recent movie I wanted to focus on. I'm like, oh, I need to get something, you know, now and mm-hmm. something that maybe not everyone has seen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, I, that movie kind of blew my mind. I think it's in the cult. It's in there. I think now, <laughs> now also as, as people become more aware of your work, and you, you do have a lot of kind of you know celebrity fans that that follow and retreat your work and it'd be interesting to see someone now go back and watch one of these cult movies because they saw it in your artwork as opposed to knowing it from its its source origin you know yeah and so that that's going to be kind of neat like I, I hope that someone you know looks in that wall and like maybe they know ghost world and maybe they know they live and maybe they know holy mountain and they're like what's this american haircuts thing what's this attribute to or hey what's this you know what's fantastic planet or yeah you know, no I, I i hope so um gummo you know like gummo often name checked i think in hipster circles but still not very frequently watched i almost based all of them on movies they showed on night flight yeah i mean night flight i grew up with uh that was my jam yeah i mean I'm they so had this on late at night they had reefer madness on there mm-hmm. they played clips of fantastic planet they played uh, terror of tiny town yep. you know and it was total late night stoner television yep. uh, back in the day and uh they just spun, uh, it was like MTV, you know, uh, but late night drug oriented kind of <laughs> stuff, you yeah. know, and I was just like so blown away and it's exposed me to so many things. I remember watching them do a long form uh, music video for Careful With That Axe Eugene by Pink Floyd, oh, say yeah. over Nosferatu. Oh yeah, they mixed, they mashed yeah. stuff up, they did all this different, you know, yeah, it was like almost public access, but it was yeah. all syndicated. And uh, Stuart think- Shapiro, you know, a genius, you know, a big part of our upbringing. There's a lot of, and MTV wasn't available on all cable formats in that day, but USA Network was. Yeah, it was USA. USA Network, maybe because it was called USA Network, made it into almost every single cable um you know, chain. So you had a bunch of different local carriers, whether it was Warner or Charter or or whoever, that that made it every place. So on Friday nights, you know, if you were a kid and you you wanted that music video, Jones, Night Flight was on from dusk till dawn, pretty much. It was amazing. I think they have their own internet station that you they do. pay a monthly and I'm, I'm about to get i'm I've about got it. to dig on it yeah i've, I've looked, got it oh good i added it to my roku you know um <laughs> you know mark um yeah. he's he's writing stuff for them now and you know it's it's interesting to see this kind of like people our age rediscovering that element of our youth you know, through this lens of 35 years or 40 years that have passed. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> well, it was the, yeah, it was late night 80s. Yeah, I, was, I remember I was in high school. I mean, they were playing stuff like uh, Up All Night with Gilbert Godfrey yeah. and stuff like that. And, and before like, that with Rhonda. Yeah, they were yeah. playing like 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 uh, nudie movies, but cutting out all the good parts. And, yeah. you had, and Gilbert Godfrey, yeah, it was uh, uh, Amazon Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, no, it's, yeah, it's really, it's funny being reminiscent of uh, TV <laughs> well, give a shout out. Where can people follow you on social media? Um, you could uh, follow my Tumblr. Uh, look up Sean Stepanoff Tumblr. Spell it. And my Instagram. Oh, uh, S-E-A-N. S-T-E-P-A-N-O-F-F. Mm-hmm. Uh, my Instagram. 
uh, Sean.Stepanoff, uh, spelled the same way, S-E-A-N, S-T-E-P-A-N-O-F-F. Mm-hmm. Um, my Instagram is my, my main uh, vehicle for communicating with people and showing my stuff. Um, I'm working on some stuff, so, you know, uh, yeah, but stay on my Instagram. You can stay in contact and with me. And you also DJ. I DJ. I, I DJ around town. Uh, I DJ vinyl disco, tallow disco. I do it at the Melody Lounge mm-hmm. every last Friday. And uh, it's happening this month. And uh, yeah, it's definitely a hobby of mine that I enjoy a lot. And uh, yeah, I, I definitely, definitely a totally different gear than art. And uh, it's more definitely a pleasure for me that I definitely don't want to turn into like a job. Yeah, you <laughs> want it to stay fun. Yeah, yeah. No requests, please. And and as I've said, you know, um, Sean Stepanoff's show is currently on the walls at La Luz de Jesus Gallery. You can check it out at l a l u z d e j e s u s dot com. He is in the July exhibition. Um, you know, we've we've still got quite a few pieces available. They are incredible, and it's it's just kind of fun to walk around a room and be like, oh my god, I know that. Oh, and and to also find out what someone else thinks of as representative of a movie that you've seen. So, like, we all remember different things generally, and, and there's, there's certain things that we all remember together, but then there's, like, little things that make Yeah, you got to include those little things, because when people remember, oh, God, where's the bubble gum? Okay, there's the bubble gum. Yeah. You know, if you don't, yeah, it's 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 fans. It's, it's, it's uh, what you love about the movie, and, you know, you have to put what you think should be involved, but also there's some things you can't leave out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool, man. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Again, um, you've been listening to Pod Sequentialism. I've been your host, Matt Kennedy. Tune in weekly. Uh, I think we missed a week because of the July 4th holiday, and um, I had the good fortune to go and visit with uh, Torben Ulrich up in um, in Tiburon, California, who will be ex- exhibiting his first Los Angeles show after a, a very lengthy career in, in tennis and in fine arts and in jazz. And uh, we'll be announcing more about that at Gallery 30 South. But uh, follow all the social media. Also follow the Panic Collective, P-A-N-I-K-C-O-L-L-E-C-T-I-V-E. And uh, add Nohia, A-D-N-O-H-I-A, which is actually <laughs> iHonda backwards. Uh, and um, also co-owner of Gallery 30 South. So um, also want to give a, another shout out to one of the people who helped inspire this particular episode which is uh, T1J, the one janitor. Follow his social media and tune into his YouTube station and uh, check out some of the other shows on the Meltdown Podcast Network. Until next time. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.